During this episode, we will be discussing content that may be disturbing, even traumatizing to some listeners. Please listen at your discretion. Thank you. Margins, the podcast series dedicated to re-energizing the mental health needs of people with blindness or visual impairment through education, communication, and collaboration. I'm your host, Dr. Clarissa Richardson, Christian mental health practitioner and critical disability scholar. In today's episode, we critically explore vision loss from a trauma-informed lens, incorporating concepts of identity and adaptive, compassionate leadership. In addition, we skillfully apply measurements of self-efficacy, such as vicarious experiences and performance accomplishments within the context of vision loss, thereby highlighting the power behind self-efficacy stores amidst social aggravators, such as prejudice. You know, when we consider the general lack of research, studying vision loss from a trauma-specific framework, the majority of experimental mental health studies pertaining to vision loss following an overwhelmingly objective equation of causality and the proclivity for trauma to be incredibly subjective and complex in presentation. The mechanism by which vision loss actually occurs is just as much a factor in the presence or emergence of mental health symptoms and or issues as one's perception of it, objective or otherwise. And so my guest today is committed to exposing the power behind such storytelling narrative to educate healthcare professionals on the limitations of operating strictly from a medical model framework. Marcus Engel is an author, adjunct professor, and renowned certified speaker professional specializing in the counseling, education, and training of healthcare professionals on compassionate, relational approaches to healthcare outcomes. More specifically, Marcus emphasizes humanistic concepts within that intimacy of patient-provider relationships, and he exposes the healing benefit of adopting said approaches into treatment. In addition, Marcus holds a master's in narrative medicine and utilizes it and his unique story of vision loss to influence change across healthcare systems. Marcus, we are so uh, honored and excited to have you on the show today. Well, Dr. Richardson, thank you for having me. It's an honor for me to be with you and uh, sharing this space. Wonderful. I believe today is going to be more informative for me, and I just really am excited about sharing this space with you. 
So just to kind of give our listeners a little bit of the background on today's episode, um, we're talking about vision loss from a trauma-informed lens. So, you know, subjective beliefs, one subjective meaning making relative to vision loss are powerful forces of change and motivation for aid for people with BVI. And we know this through research from Brennan and others, 2011, and Demon and Silverstein's recent literature review in 2022, or 2020 rather. Conversely, such beliefs can manifest differently contingent on the character of social support and the type of well-being that's actually introduced to the person. So, you know, when, when we're considering the lack of research studying vision loss from a trauma-specific framework, you know, clinical treatment approaches failing to really identify mechanisms of change toward healing and recovery, such as increased hope for the future and recovery of self-esteem relative to vision loss specifically, and clinical assessments largely informed by objective measures of visual impairment, such as one's visual acuity or visual functioning, a better methodology is needed. Um, that's my argument. You know, more, more research is really needed that replicates this literature um, to aid in the development of a methodology that better suits the complexity of vision loss as a trauma-related psychological construct. And so requiring such an approach to understanding the mental health needs of people with BVI. So Marcus, our listeners are eager to hear more about the mechanism by which you lost your vision, um, including maybe the type and character of professional support and aid that ultimately influenced your identity and career choice. So can you share your experience of losing your vision from a trauma lens and maybe how that experience affected your identity multidimensionally and created an avenue to pursue public speaking? Sure. And I like that you use the word identity because it when when my trauma happened, I was an 18-year-old college freshman. And I think one of the great things about going off to college is you can quote unquote reinvent yourself, right? From the person mm -hmm. that you were as um as an adolescent and growing up going through high school. And so that's where I was six uh, six weeks into my freshman year of college at Missouri State University, came home for the weekend and um, went to a St. Louis Blues hockey game with some friends. And it was on our way home from that uh, hockey game that the car that we were riding in was hit broadside by a drunk driver. That crash... Uh, not only took 100% of my sight instantaneously and totally and uh, permanently, but I also received what's called a Lafort three fracture. If you're not in the clinical realms, uh, Lafort three means that pretty much every bone in the face from the hairline through the chin uh, has been crushed. And in fact, there's a few other things that I have broken in my head and cranium that uh, that didn't even fit into a Lafort three. So my plastic surgeon later referred to it as a Lafort three plus 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 plus. Wow. Um, and that was that was a uh, 
not only was the the blindness immediate, uh, but there was also the the very real possibility that I could lose my life. Had I not been uh, near a level one trauma center at the time of that trauma, I probably wouldn't be talking to you today. Wow. That's, uh, that's, that's pretty incredible. The story um, of your vision loss. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think most many people can understand uh, from your perspective that the vision loss was only maybe one of many different losses that you experienced from just that incident. Is that fair to say? Certainly, certainly. Um, you know, just physically, I I lost most of my sense of smell. I lost some degree of my hearing due to the damage that was done um, to my facial bones. Uh, so every sense that I had was affected in some way. That's not to even consider the loss of independence and right. uh, maybe the loss of, of abilities. So yeah, quite a bit of loss that went down in a split second. Can you share a little bit more about uh, your hospital recovery um, and that experience for you? Because I know that during some of our pre-interview discussions, you mentioned um, that it was, I think your words were, uh, somewhat of a total care nightmare. And I think uh, our listeners would love to hear what that really uh, constitutes from your perspective. Yeah. So, so total care in the world of, of nursing means that a patient really needs total care that they cannot, um, they cannot move. They are immobile. And in my case, I was a patient that the Docs and nurses were treating. I was not only blind, um, I was immobile. I was disfigured. Um, I was uh, still attached to a breathing tube. There were just multiple things that were different about me. And the 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 most beautiful part of this story is the compassionate care that I received from the nurses and the doctors who took care of me during that during that medical trauma lengthy lengthy recovery one of my one of my favorite things that ever happened during that recovery though was when a a nurse came uh not a nurse a social worker came into my room and i had met her previously but she came up to the bed and she identified herself and she said you know, Marcus, there is nothing good about what happened to you. But if there is anything that's good, it's that you're a resident of the state of Missouri. She said, Missouri has some of the best rehab services for, for people with visual impairments of any state in the country. She said, it's a good thing that you're a resident of the state of Missouri. And I didn't understand at that point in time, just how true that statement was, uh, at least it was back in the early nineties. So it's, uh, I, with, with that kind of compassionate care from the nurses, the docs, the therapists, the social workers, uh, that's what I build my career on these days in storytelling and, um, doing narrative medicine rounds around the country. 
trying to get those who work with patients every day from a clinical standpoint, trying to get them to stay connected to the reason that they got into healthcare in the first place, right? right Which was right. probably a desire to help people, a desire to help humanity. And unfortunately, healthcare is just like any other job. We can get burnt out, we get tired, we get compassion fatigue. But I'm there to remind those who are uh, clinicians that, hey, there's a human being at the other end of the stethoscope and that your presence is the greatest gift that you can give to a patient. Right, right. Wonderful. And, um, you know, I agree with all of this and I think I, I'm it makes my heart happy to hear that a social worker um, stuck with you, that experience, at least uh, that that was meaningful enough um, that she saw you. And I think when we were speaking, you did mention that you, you are also an author and you've written a few, um, a few manuscripts that really do uh, try to emphasize this connection, uh, this re-energizing of this idea, right. Of connecting with your patient on a humanistic level. And, um, I know one of the most uh, moving and maybe most powerful uh, of these uh, narratives that you share is, is your experience when you were um, in your recovery in the hospital, um, completely dependent on all of these other professionals. And there was one who was not just connecting with you, but getting on your level and, and telling you that she was there for you, that she was not going to leave and that she was, she saw you um, yeah. with, within that suffering. And I, you know, she didn't have to do much. <laughs> and yeah. so I think, I think, it, I think I would love to hear some more about that experience specifically, if you don't mind sharing. Yeah, sure. That's, that's the, that's the story. And that's the night that they rolled me in. Uh, they pulled me into the emergency room. I was, uh, I had been criked in the street, so I was on a breathing tube before I ever even got to the hospital. Um, didn't know if I was going to survive, but there was a 20-year-old patient care tech named Jennifer who held my hand that whole night. And I would, I would wake up occasionally or I would come back into consciousness and, uh, of course, just in some of the most horrific pain I think anybody could ever imagine. Right. And, and Jennifer just would squeeze my hand and she'd say, Marcus, I'm here. I'm here. And that those, those compassionate words and her compassionate presence really gave me a layer of comfort when nothing else could. Right. And Jennifer, she, she was a 20 year old tech, right? That if you're not familiar with the world of healthcare, um, twenty year old anyone's don't right. rank real high. <laughs> no, and, they do not. And techs are are kind of entry level, and so uh, she she couldn't have done a whole lot. But the thing that she did do for me that was so important was gave me her presence. Right. Yeah. Wow. I love that she gave you her her time, um, her empathy, and her presence. And I, you know, Marcus, your, your vision loss experience, I mean, including the mechanism by which you lost your vision through a, a tragedy of a drunk driver, all of this really highlights the complexity of trauma. And it further adds credibility to a lot of the related research 
that I mentioned earlier by Brennan and others, 2011, and Guret and Smadima, 2011, and they emphasize the impact of subjective assessment and comprehension within the mental health treatment paradigm for people with BVI as it relates to vision loss. Because as you clearly said, you did not simply lose your vision, right? You lost so much more. Um, and so to move toward healing and recovering of, of trauma, health professionals must have that deep understanding and acceptance of the healing power of subjective experiences. You know what I mean? For these, these certainly can drive treatment outcomes, medical or otherwise. And much of the work that you do now really emphasizes this subjective interlude, having this conversation with your patient, having a human basic conversation. Um, you know, you encourage medical specialty providers such as doctors, nurses, um, really just to become more curious toward operationalizing these approaches within the field of medicine. Um, and, you know, that suggests that it's not just the charge of the mental health professional, right, to really display compassion um, or the social worker even. It's, it's, it's a human attendance for everyone who is working with this, this individual who is suffering in their own subjective way. So I know that you had mentioned this before as a CSP certified speaker professional, you really do emphasize health professionals finding their why, right? Or maybe even remembering their why, I guess, in mm -hmm. healthcare. Can you share more about this concept uh, specifically when you're, when you're trying to uh, re-energize the concept and why it's so important relative to that patient provider relationship? Yeah, I, I say that really I'm nothing more than a reminder. I just tap healthcare professionals <laughs> on the shoulder and say, hey, do you remember why you why you went into this? You know, yeah. do you remember why? Uh, do you remember all those nights of studying for uh, nurses, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, have the uh, most difficult baccalaureate degree of any profession out there? I've heard of that, yeah. actually. Uh, yes. So you didn't go through all that studying to get burnt out and to quit from the job. No, you stay connected with who you are and why you wanted to do this in the first place. And you stay connected with your patients. There's, there's this kind of um, backwards concept that used to be very uh, pervasive in the medical world, which was you don't get close to your patients because if a and not not just in the medical world, but also in nursing and probably across healthcare, you don't get close to your patient because if that patient dies, you're going to feel really bad. Well, you're going to feel really bad whether you got close to them or if you push that relationship away. Right. So let's just let's just completely embrace our own humanity here and say, and while we're doing it, look at each person as an individual too. Exactly. I love that. Um, and it, it's, and you know, I love that you brought that up, the pervasiveness of that, that culture um, related to kind of keeping that distance and boundaries for patients between patients and providers. I think, you know, I think there's, there's the intent to keep up. I mean, you can let me know how you feel about this, but maybe there is an intent to keep things professional. And I say that <laughs> in a, with quotations, I guess, uh, because uh, I think I would imagine that health professionals, some health professionals, uh, maybe mainly physicians and nurses, they, there is a desire to keep, um, you know, that professional standard, 
to be able to be um, professional in that setting with a patient so that there's maybe security, maybe there's a, a feeling of expertise and accountability, right? But we really shouldn't, it sounds like what you're saying, Marcus, is that we really shouldn't allow those types of concepts get in the way of really connecting with um, the individuals that we serve. We are human beings taking care of human beings. And to to try to make that into something else is just backwards. It's just backwards, right? right? We just have to remember that we are human beings with all the frailties that go along with being human beings. Uh, we're human beings taking care of human beings. Right. And we're human beings first, I think. Right. 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 Yeah. And that's something that I think is not really disputable. So I really, the work that you're doing, Marcus, is, I, I keep saying it's amazing, but one of the things that I respect so much about your work is that you're kind of attending to two incredibly important periods of time and formation for health professionals. Um, for instance, as a CSP, you are attending to the context of healthcare institutions and organizations because you're re-energizing the concept of compassion and relationship to well-established and, you know, competent health professionals, right? And in addition, in your role of adjunct professor and co-instructor, you are also attending to the context of healthcare students, right? That's that formation. You So you're aiding in the formation of a compassionate medical provider. Um, and I think that latter work, you know, is, is actually supported by research. I know I talk about research so much, but, <laughs> you know, it is, there's research by, Khalili and others in 2013, and they suggested that there is an anticipatory socialization process that occurs when individuals seek professional statuses. And these are influenced by society and media regarding what that professionalism actually looks like. So then they go through training and education through institutions of higher learning. And what actually occurs is what the authors describe as a professionalization process. And that sort of takes over the personal values and characteristics of that individual. Right. And so as a result, you know, the professional adopts a unidimensional identity, one that can, can discredit other professionals in the context of the care and sort of kind of sees their own as better, you know, um, and so to combat this, the authors and researchers, they developed a socialization process that focused on breaking down barriers, much of the way you're currently doing, right? Teamwork, self-reflection, role changes to counter that unidimensional effect to create a dual identity. So one that encourages the, you know, enmeshment and inclusion, I guess, rather of personal values and characteristics of that person. You know, the, the, those innate intrinsic things that kind of get pushed to the side um, when we start becoming a professional. And, you know, when, when we imagine what humanistic values are, compassion, love, acceptance, these aren't so different from being a nurse or being a doctor, right? Hopefully. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully those are the traits uh, that our docs and nurses have. Yes. Yeah. So and I'd love to hear what you think about, uh, you know, this research, but also just kind of like in the context of your own spiritual beliefs. Right. I mean, um, 
I know in, in some of our pre-discussions, uh, you did share that you do believe in Jesus um, mm. and that Christianity has been somewhat of a different type of relationship for you. However, Jesus did, you know, evoke the same humanistic values, right? And so I, I just would love to hear how maybe those beliefs that you have, if at all, if those impact the work that you do or how you see your work. You know, I think my my religious upbringing impacts most aspects of my life. I, I grew up in a small country church in rural Missouri, and uh, those it, it taught me leadership skills, as we talked about, um, going through youth group and being an officer in youth group, and then going around the state with a uh, uh, other youth events for the youth of my denomination. Uh, it, it gave me some of the relationships, many of the relationships that were so supportive of me during my trauma. Mm. And so, so I've, I also, you know, after, after such a life-changing trauma, I, I really figured that there's a few different ways that I could go with faith. I could be um, I could be really, really mad at God for well, letting this happen to me. And it didn't make a lot of sense for me to be mad at divinity. Last time I checked, I'm still a, a mere mortal. The other side, I said, I could be like super thankful and yay, God, thank you so much for not letting me die, which is of unrealistic when you've got doctors coming in and telling you that you're never going to see again. Right. And wow. that yeah. your, you know, gratitude doesn't seem real authentic in a moment like that either. And ultimately what I, what I chose was simply that my faith has gotten me through the first 18 years of my life just fine. I've had some major life changes. I don't need another major life change in my religious outlook and bringing. So I, I still identify as Christian this many years later, I, um, I practice Christianity and I believe that, that the example that was shown to us by Jesus of right. acceptance and love and compassion, those are what truly connect us at our most humanistic level. That's beautiful. Um, I love that. And uh, I I would also uh, argue that it it, it definitely um, helps when as like from from my perspective, my, Marcus as a social worker, you know I see clients um, in private practice. It the the concept of acceptance, love, compassion, all of these things that you're mentioning, they they do impact my practice because I it helps me to. Um, mitigate some of those feelings of burnout, I guess, what you've mm -hmm. been, you know, trying to explicate to a lot of health professionals. It, it helps to explain that, right? It helps to clarify that because if I'm burnt out from loving others, you know, sure, I need to, you know, establish boundaries and take care of myself so I can be at my best, but I'm still doing, I'm still being validated and vindicated to know that what I'm doing is still the right thing, I guess, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, so I really appreciate you sharing. Uh, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to share that. I, I am so often contacted by 
healthcare organization and major conferences that, um, that, you know, they're hiring me for the clinical aspect, not the spiritual aspect. And so, so thank you for giving me an opportunity to, to share some of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think, um, I think, I mean, we can have a whole podcast session about this, so I'm not going to get into that, but I think we can definitely talk a lot more about um, spirituality within health healthcare, uh, as well as just spirituality within the self, how that connects us to really everyone else. Um, so um, absolutely. So let's shift a bit. Um, I want to kind of talk about trauma in the context of your specific vision, rehab and recovery. Um, you know, as I mentioned, as a therapist myself, I do specialize in trauma. So I, I am familiar with uh, nervous system analysis, understanding emotional and behavioral uh, behaviors within uh, maladaptive nervous system issues. And so I understand that while trauma is a subjective experience, there are some, <clears throat> I guess, general elements of trauma that can present functional difficulties, right? Um, for instance, Trauma experiences can halt our cognitive processing capabilities, right? It, it can affect um, the onset of clarity and comprehension and application of skills and demands, things that we need to get done. And within the trauma paradigm, unprocessed emotions can take quite a bit of time to kind of catch up with our cognitive functioning. And this is more reliable when we add physical sensations to trauma experiences. And I know um, in your experience, losing your vision, which was only one part of this, this experience, you lost much more, but in that trauma experience, you, you do, you did mention uh, in some past, past interviews with me that there were physical sensations that you believed were part of probably the worst moments of your trauma experience. So I think when we consider the primary demands of vision rehab, which is consistent of cognitive mastery, right? Uh, learning new skills, um, daily living adjustments and all of these cognitive, like, uh, processing skills. It is really concerning Marcus, if trauma is part of that equation, right? Um, so can you share maybe about your experience navigating VR, um, O&M and, you know, just VR and O&M, I guess, during your vision rehabilitation, what was that like for you trying to master those cognitive um, skills during which you, you, you were still trying to, uh, you know, recover from this experience of, of vision loss and life adjustment? Yeah. So, so to a certain extent, the, the physical recovery um, took a lot more precedence over the uh re rehabilitative is that a word yeah <laughs> rehabilitative <laughs> um, recovery or uh, rehabilitation period uh, because because you know i yes i can worry about uh how i'm going to learn how to cross a street using a cane or a dog but again when you're staring down a 15 hour facial reconstruction the next day it kind of you know, the idea of rehab takes a back seat to that. Absolutely. So, so I feel like I almost had a little bit of a, I don't want to say a cushion, but to a certain extent, a cushion that, uh, that I had some other distractions besides just the loss of sight at the time. Right. Um, 
and through so through voc rehab uh what what the social worker cindy said was absolutely right and i as a as a patient still in the hospital uh still attached to a breathing tube still attached to a feeding tube i i had to write everything out longhand and i wrote out on a piece of paper that i want to get back into college i want to be with my friends again and that was my goal and that's the goal that i kept for the next couple of years until finally accomplishing that goal that was through all the voc rehab and the um going and doing about a six-month stint at the colorado center for the blind in denver Wow. And uh, doing a month of training with my first dog in Morristown, New Jersey, and so it was a it was a long uh, and it was a long rehabilitation process. But even then, going all through school, how much the state helped me with o m learning campus being blind and right. getting all of my books and getting all of my books uh on cassette for me um you know you you asked a little bit earlier too about some of the mental health aspects with uh going through this kind of trauma i don't remember ever having any type of discussions about mental health with anybody in voc rehab um, all of the conversations were about skills and education and opportunities, et cetera. But there were none about um, about mental health. And I thought they missed a pretty darn good opportunity there. A hundred percent agree. I'm, I'm biased, but I'm glad you said that, Marcus, because mm. um, much of my research would agree with you. Um, wow. Like, so it sounds like what you're saying, Marcus, is a lot of your maybe um, earliest foci with recovering and rehabilitation really made blindness more of a delay in your processing. Is that May have fair been. to say? Yeah, yeah that, so, that's probably fair. Yeah. And you did mention also that um, you, you uh, I think in our pre-interviews, can you share a little bit about what your support system was like? Because I think our listeners should should understand how it's... It, that is such a huge part of recovering from, you know, any type of serious trauma like this, but most importantly, um, you know, making sense of, of your blindness and what that means now. Yeah. So I was again at 18 years old and just six weeks into my freshman year of college. So I feel like to a certain extent, this was the absolute best time in my life for this to happen. Uh, physically, I was in the best shape of my life. Right. I I had friends from high school that I was still close with. I had friends from college that I was close with. I had friends from uh, church camp events that I was close with. Um, I had my church community. I had the small town that I grew up in, the whole support of the school and uh, the school that I graduated from. It, it it just I I was so so blessed by the community and the family around me. It's uh, even even to this day I I still can't. Um, it it still humbles me to think about uh, that much support from that many people. Absolutely, uh, it sounds like um, 
exactly what one would love to have during something um, as traumatic as that, which you experienced. And, you know, I know that we all, we, we live in an, a, we live in an inherently ableist society. Right. And I sure. know, I know that I'm not, um, I'm not discriminated against with this because I myself am sighted. And if I were to lose my, my sight, that would be something that I would have to personally deal with when it comes to my own biases. Um, so I think our listeners and myself as well would love to hear more about how you manage those feelings because I mean we would be kidding ourselves if we we all agreed that we were not inherently ableist um sight is the most if not I'm gonna I'm not gonna say the most but I'm gonna say one of the most like explicitly required senses that we have and so we don't really as a sighted person I'm gonna speak for myself I don't really think about life without seeing so I think um, I would love to hear about how you managed or navigated through some of that personal bias of what it meant to um, kind of accept that you are now a part of the blind community. Yeah, that was that was a thing. I I am very open and honest to say that I am the first blind person I ever met. Right. I, I had never <laughs> I had never met a person who was blind. Now I saw a couple of people on my college campus navigating around. So I knew that there were blind people out there getting an education and uh, living their lives, but I had not met any. And so I had so many misconceptions and so many preconceived notions about what blind people could do or couldn't do. And, um, and so, yes, I had to walk through a lot of my own, I, I probably still have to fight with some of my own um, preconceived notions or prejudices that I had from my days before I was a person with a disability. So, so yeah, it's, and of course you bring identity into that. Uh, it's an identity that, you know, most people don't want. I, I I remember being in college and uh, I'd occasionally get somebody to say to me, you're not really blind, you're faking it. Wow, really? Really, really, Are you serious? really why would I fake this, right? Wow, <laughs> why? Marcus. If I was going to think of something else, uh, if I was going to lie about something, I'd think of something cooler than blindness to fake. Right, um, you That's know? horrible. But it's 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 just to a certain extent, I have to take that as a compliment that their impression of what blind people can be and do, um, you know, I have to take that as a compliment that they're that it's outside of their preconceived notions and uh, gives me a chance. I, you have to look at it as, as an opportunity to educate. Absolutely, I, I, I learned a long time ago that. Um, just due to the fact that there are so few people who are blind or visually impaired, that there's lots of curiosity and lots of questions, and you're just going to get those questions, period. So better look at it as an opportunity to educate as opposed to being mad about it all the time, because it's going to happen. Love it. I love it. I love it so much. Uh, you sounded like my mother and I mean that in a good way. <laughs> mm -hmm. My mom uh, would say the same thing. It, uh, every moment is an opportunity to educate someone. And um, I would hundred percent agree. The more that you become frustrated with, with people during their curious moments about blindness, the least likely you are to see any changes related Absolutely. to that social, right? So 
absolutely incredible and 100% agree. You know, um, I'm going to say your experience with much of your vision, uh, rehabilitation, VR, O&M, it's quite different, Marcus, and arguably very rare in um, comparison to much of the research that I have been able or privileged uh, uh, to uh, read and and educate myself on. For instance, research by Cruden and Steverson 2022, so very recent, found that um, individuals with BVI engaged in VR reported concerns regarding both the timeliness and the quality of necessary supports, such as such as um, you know computer training and equipment, things that would help them you know move forward in their careers or be become more confident in their blindness. So. As a result, um, participants in this specific study reported the need to develop persistence um, as a like a trait, a quality trait relative to actually coping with such limitations and related anxiety regarding retaining employment. And so as you're speaking about, you know, Missouri um, and their specific service uh, provisions related to VR, as well as all the all the other um opportunities that you were provided, not very social based, but very much, you know, technical based. This is something that I think our listeners need to understand because there is a difference. Uh, and that, that difference in support is state, it varies depending on the state that you're in. And, you know, I just would like to hear maybe some, if you'd like to reflect on that at all, or share some of your experiences, maybe observing other others in, in different situations. Well, I, I've certainly had the opportunity to meet many blind people from other states, and I'll still take my uh, my upbringing. I I think one of the things that you said that uh, that that my journey through voc rehab might be a little different because I do very much remember a day getting a call from my rehab counselor uh, who said, "Hey, is there anything we can do for you?" And I was year, year and a half out, out of college. And I was working for myself. I was, you know, making a living, probably not getting rich, but I was making a living. Yeah. And, and I thought about it and I was like, no, not really. And she said, well, can I close your case then? <laughs> I suppose so. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so just that quickly, uh, my case was closed and I, I uh, understand that that's not always the norm for a lot of people who are living with BVI. Yeah, certainly. Um, thank you for sharing that. Uh, I think, you know, I don't, I don't think, I don't believe there's anything necessarily to be shameful about when related to the varied experiences. I, I do think that um, it is, you know, I'd love to hear what you think about this, Marcus, but I do think that there is a culture involved in, um, the states, when the states do get, you know, regulatory power over what they provide, you know, if you, if you live in a state that provides, that's more progressive, maybe in nature when it comes to people with disabilities, right. You're going to notice many more organizations and pro programs that would support such efforts. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, thank you for sharing that. So we discussed VR and O&M now I would love it if you would be so kind to share about your current mental health status, including um, the treatment modality that you are receiving. I think many of our listeners have heard me discuss in previous episodes uh, the limitations of current treatment methodologies and approaches for people with BVI. 
namely um, how they are lacking in holistic processes, lacking in intersubjectivity, and lacking in long-term care initiatives. So um, I would love it if you, Marcus, could share your experience with accessing mental health services um, as it relates to your trauma and how you are perceiving the progression of that therapy that you're participating in today. Yeah, so my my therapy and counseling after the trauma was pretty poor. Um, we got to keep in mind, this is the early 90s. Psychology and mental health wasn't what it is today. Right. Uh, but even so, I was uh, placed with a psychologist who I later learned had a specialty in geriatrics. I was still a teenager. And geriatrics. Uh, geriatrics, exactly. Um, so I can't say that that was really very effective for me. Um, I, I went to counseling at that time because if I went for a session, it also meant that my mom and dad went for a session. Right. And I wanted my mom and dad to have... Um, have an outlet or, or a professional to talk to about everything that they were going through. Cause I knew that was terribly hard on them as parents. And so I, so I've continued counseling on and off and um, probably in the last six months or so I have, um, I'm always been a little bit of a, a, a psychology nerd. I love personal <laughs> development. I, I, um, I, I read quite a few books on psychology and personal development. And so, um, so I, when I, when I look at the, uh, at the mental health counseling that I get today, it was, it was recommended to me several years ago, uh, to try EMDR, which I've now been doing for mm, several months and I'm, Kind of understanding how how it works and seeing the seeing the effects of it. So, uh, I I also very much love that we are we are in a uh, a time in history when we have virtual opportunities to get mental health counseling or to get mental health help. Yes, yes. because you know this certainly really lowers some of the barriers that people with blindness and visual impairments have to receiving mental health counseling and help. Um, just the, having the virtual option opens up a lot of doors. Absolutely. Um, would agree with that statement, especially, uh, you know, when we think about, like you said, the technological, um, challenges as well as just the accessibility in general for people with BVI. Um, and we can even, we can even people with disabilities, right? I mean, sure. so absolutely. Thank you for sharing your experience. And it does sound like it's, it's shifted quite a bit. EMDR is actually, I would agree that whoever suggested that you attempt to try EMDR as a treatment modality related to your trauma, that was an excellent recommendation because I, I too am an EMDR training, uh, trained provider. And I think that that, that has helped so many people. Uh, so when you, when you think about where you're at in your EMDR journey right now, Marcus, and you don't have to go into deep detail, but mm. 
Um, have you noticed um, the relationship between you and your provider? How would you describe that relationship? Because a lot of the research that I've noticed is that it's it's not very uh, congruent, I guess, when it comes to people with BVI and their experiences. The majority of experiences that research at least has indicated has been not very connected. Uh, either there's not a good connection, there is a hyperfixation on visual impairment, um, there is less of a subjective interlude, you know, all of these things we've been talking about. So when you think about your provider, you know, how would you describe that relationship with him? So I, I have a pretty good idea of what I want in a provider after 30 years of on and off counseling and therapy. And, and I, I liked that my provider, even the first time when I talked about um, yeah, so this is my past. He was saying, you know, it doesn't really matter what the past is. It's what do you want to, what do you want to be shooting for in the future? Mm. And, and I thought, okay, that's a different approach than somebody who might want to, as you said, hyper-focus on the blindness aspect. Um, but I, I really feel like I've been able to show this provider that, look, there's a lot more to me than just the trauma that I endured 30 years ago. Wow. Uh, kind of speechless there, because I think that's a beautiful thing. I, uh, the the fact that you have a provider who's, who's telling you that they want to focus on what you want to do in the future and who you want to be in the future is very inconsistent with any of the the research I've I've been able to review on this experience uh, between a provider, a mental health provider, and a person with BVI. In addition, Marcus, just having discussions with other people with BVI, that is not the case. And I I'm so so happy that you have found a provider who actually sees you uh, first as a human being, um, and has given you maybe the space to say, hey these are the things, right, that mm -hmm. I, I I bring to the table. And it's uh, a lot. It's not, um, it's not one singular mindset. Um, and I think it's also reminded me of that, that, um, that statement you had made in, in some of our pre discussions about having a 100, you know, different uh, qualities, but, you know, blindness is not something that you would you know, might be the, the the third or the fourth thing that you want to talk about. I mean, so if even that high, if <laughs> even that high, right? right. I, when right. I when I think about identity, um, and I do a decent amount of reflection on identity, I would think if there are a hundred things about me, and you ask me to write out a hundred of them. I would be writing a significant list before I ever even thought about, oh my gosh, this aspect of blindness that a lot of people might say is my, the first most identifiable thing about me. But I, I have, I have a life. I have a wife. I have a family. Right. I have a career. I have, I have many other things uh, that, that would connect me with more people, commonalities, I would suppose than than things that would keep us separated so that's where i i don't look at my blindness as the biggest aspect of my identity of who is who i am wonderful that's that's awesome thank you so much for going into detail 
uh, and what that means to you. And I, again, I, uh, I think it's so important that you find a therapist. If you, if that is something that someone with uh, individuals with BVI are looking for, that that therapeutic relationship is so important because Marcus, socially there is a disadvantage and it is a cycle like it's a cycle of institutional socialization that that blind people or people with BVI are limited just naturally. And mm -hmm. I think so when you find someone, a therapist that's willing to and open to changing that. Uh, that I guess environment for you, that's something you should yourself hold other therapists accountable for. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I'm lucky. <laughs> I'm lucky. Yeah. You know, um, when I think about the work that you do now, Marcus, it, it does sound a lot like what I would call adaptive leadership, um, adaptive leadership. If you're unfamiliar, uh, is a concept that's used by many scholars, but I'm going to use one, Koleski and others in 2020. They they elucidated adaptive leadership as a deconstruction of the traditional ways leadership is operationalized to afford a heightened focus on outcomes rather than tasks. So such leadership really requires flexibility, self-awareness, and empathy that goes well beyond an individual's surface level abilities, right? It seeks to install a renewed method of insight that hopefully presents itself in organizational processes, um, thereby improving organizational outcomes. And, you know, Marcus, you may not be a leader of a large organization per se, but you are, um, if anything, modeling authentic and compassionate leadership. And I know this because the qualities that I'm noticing, um, as described by research, that authentic leaders strive for transparency intra-organizationally. They're bridging life stories as vulnerable invitations to how they develop meaning and gain clarity. And this work takes courage, right? But it underpins the goal of power deconstruction and fosters inclusion. And that's exactly what you're doing, Marcus, that's you. That's what it seems like. So when we consider the lack of leadership opportunities for people with BVI and how this simply reinforces stereotypes of what people with BVI can do, you know, remember thinking again about tasks over outcomes, health professionals who adopt authentic and compassionate leadership are better positioned, in my opinion, to serve this population. Um, and you know, when you think about the disparities across the realm of people with disabilities, so, um, you know, people with BBI, but also just varied disabilities, what are some of your concerns? And um, are there any issues or challenges that you would like to encourage critical assessment of when it comes to leadership, um, both for people with BBI and health professionals? Uh, with leadership, I mean, I think that... How do we get more blind people in more leadership positions? Right. Show up more, show up more, right? You yes. got to show up more and put yourself out there. Now, how to get to that point where you feel comfortable showing up and putting yourself out there, uh, it's another discussion. The, how do we, how do we, how do we 
understand our fellow human beings as um, as leaders, I, I feel like so much of it is is just EQ, mm -hmm. right? It's mm -hmm. it's can you listen yeah. without judgment to another human being, reflect on what was said before responding with something that is appropriate and <laughs> right, <laughs> right. i mean communication easier I mean, said than done right 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 but i mean i didn't mean to interrupt you no no please but what you're you know it sounds like what you're leading to toward is really just having the the self-control as well as the the desire to listen and work work from that place of listening first, that communication, being able to understand that, you know, despite the positionality of someone, the leadership is a position positionality. It really, at the end of the day, is a person that comes with their own, you know, issues, uh, comes with their own beliefs and values and talents that if we are not careful, we're going to miss, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. We're, we're going to miss. And I, I think that, um, if I can be so candid, you know, my mom is um, blind. She was born that way. And I, you know, I'm biased, but I think my mom is incredible uh, for more reasons than not. However, I think that her tenacity is often, you know, undermined by her vision that, that her, her abilities are so lucrative, you know, for organizations and, and organizational goals and objectives, but you don't see it or you don't expect it or you limit the potential of, of what she can do because of her vision, right? Because of maybe what equipment or what extra, uh, you know, focus or changes or adjustments that have to be made within the organizational structure have to happen because of those thoughts and because of those, you know, perceived like expectations of how that's going to look like, you start to, you know, not even consider it or, you know, that's, and that's just, it really bothers me because I think that we're missing out on people who have unique perspectives that we can never, ever experience. And those things, those people can change organizations. And, you know, I believe that blind people may have used to feel like they were limited from being able to effectively do the job of leadership. 100%. That's gone out the window now. You have you have so many technological uh, advantages at your fingertips that you can do anything that you want to do. And so I I love to think that uh, technology is just going to keep helping make that playing field a little more even. Very true. Very true. Accountability is huge. And I remember you mentioning um, leading from the front. <laughs> mm. uh, can you explain a little bit about what you mean when you, to our listeners when we're talking about, um, you know, being courageous in that? Yeah, I, I first learned this uh, from a youth leadership program uh, in Michigan called Camp Minnewanka. And they talked about leading from the front and leading from the back. And there's, there are those, we all know those leaders who are great organizers, great communicators. Um, they inspire people to do 
new things and inspire people to new heights. Those are the lead from the front people. And then you've got the lead from the back people. The lead from the front people might come up with the ideas and the um, the structure for how it's to be done. But the lead from the back people are the people who actually do the work. They show up. They are dependable. They are uh, uh, they are showing up to do the work. And that is that type of leadership is just as important as the person who's the figurehead of an organization or a, wow. a movement for that matter. Wow. I love that. I love that image. Um, and it, I think, uh, I think it's an important image to convey to those leaders who are at the front um, because, you know, you're using leaders interchangeably, right? There's, mm-hmm. there's leaders in the back and there's leaders in the front. So the term leadership should be adaptive, right? I mean, that's, mm-hmm. it should be one that we're all constantly thinking about um, as fluid and uh, respectful of of varied experiences and varied knowledge, varied uh, talents. So I love that. Thank you for sharing that, Marcus. Mm-hmm. Um, so this has been such a wonderful discussion, and i I want to close with a a a discussion that kind of helps to draw in the diversity behind uh, blindness experiences. And I think our listeners enjoy this part of the discussion because it's always so varied. It's always so diverse in response. So I'm going to ask you uh, to be as honest as possible, like you've been um, uh, regarding this, this next discussion. So in 2004, so a, a, a while ago, but it's such a great seminal work. Researchers Han and Belt they conducted a seminal study that asked participants with disabilities to answer controversial and critical questions related to disability identity. And the question that stumped them the most was if a magic pill existed that could cure their disability, would they want to take it like presently? And the reason it stumped them was due to the mixed findings and, you know, because as one may imagine, all participants would elect to take that pill. Of course, you would want to take that pill. So I think it's important to reevaluate this question in the context of blindness specifically. So, Marcus, I ask you if a magic pill existed that could cure your blindness today, um, would you want to take it and why? Well, the it, it would stump me too. I I I don't have an immediate answer of yes or no. Uh, I have a lot of qualifications that would go along with my answer. <laughs> yeah, and I, I would say um, yes, but only if that magic pill restores my vision to a full twenty twenty as it was prior to trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think as this is just science and the rate that biotech is moving, um, some of these questions are not going to be hypothetical in the next 10 or 20 years, right? As, as medical is, advancements keep happening. You make a very good point. A very good point. So for me, number one, the question is, would it be 100% perfect just like it had been previously and even then, I would have to think long and hard about it because the the truth of the matter is I went through one absolute life-changing 
event. And I came back from that life-changing event to create a life that I am content and happy in to do another life-changing event with the possibility that it might not necessarily improve life, right? There, right. there could be some, there could be some uh, difficulties that come along with it. I, I would have to think long and hard if I, if I would want to do it. I love your answer. Um, as I've loved all of my guests answers, cause they're, they're very honest and more importantly, they're very inclusive of, of the person. So as you were speaking about the questions you would need to be answered before you can actually give a definite yes or no, that really stuck with me because <clears throat> it reminded me of the, the, the mechanism to which you lost your sight in the first place. If we're looking, Marcus, at the statistics of vision loss, total blindness is very rare. Mm -hmm. Right. So you're, you know, you're already not in, in a, uh, in the, the general, uh, expectation of slowly losing, right. Or progressively losing vision. There's a lot of people who progressively lose vision. It gets better, it gets worse, or there's, you know, a congenital uh, issue there, but yours was very immediate. And I think your answer really speaks to that immediacy, that change, that, that immediate change that took place that changed your life. Right. And would that reverse actually change your life for the better is an excellent question to ask. Um, so it's, it's a difficult question to answer and that's why I don't have a, <laughs> a, a real solid answer, but yeah. And, and I understand that because once, once a human being has adapted uh, to something to a certain extent, that adaptation, it, it's just become a part of their life. And, um, you know, I, I, blindness isn't something that I even think about on a hour by hour or minute by minute basis. It's, I'm it's telling just you, my right? Life. It's just my life. Right. Right. Wonderful. So we have covered the, complexity of vision loss from a trauma-informed lens, and we've applied the impact of mechanism of such loss on recovery and healing, particularly within the patient-provider relationship, critical dialogue and information about the limitations of operating from a sole medical-based framework were highlighted as detriments to healthcare outcomes including the mental health implications of compassion, unity, and love amidst an individual's suffering. We've emphasized the importance of adaptive leadership as a mechanism by which people with BVI and those with other disabilities may be encouraged to elevate their implicit potential toward the success of organizations thereby evoking another avenue in which the diversity of disability can be realized and actuated. I want to thank my guest today, Marcus Engel. Thank you so much, Marcus, for your genuine share, your expertise, and your critical analysis of the healthcare system within the context of compassion. I certainly believe that our listeners have gained an enhanced understanding of the diversity of vision loss and recovery. Thank you. Thank you for that. And if 
if I can do anything for any of your listeners, please visit marcusingle.com. Be happy to answer any questions or um, there were a lot of people that helped me along the way through through my early days of uh, vision loss. And so if I can be that for another person, please let me know. And also your books, please, um, Marcus, share your books, your title, the titles of your books in case our listeners are interested. And sure. So the, the two most popular are, um, the first one is called I'm Here, Compassionate Communication and Patient Care. That is based upon that, that brief experience that I had with Jennifer, as she said, I'm here in the emergency room to me and provided that comfort. Uh, second book is The Other End of the Stethoscope, 33 Insights for Excellent Patient Care. Uh, that one is, well, actually both of those are adapted um, by a lot of nursing schools and allied health programs across the country to teach those uh, fundamental communication skills with patients. Wonderful. I also want to encourage my listeners to visit Marcus Engel's website, learn more about his story and booking opportunities for training and education. As always, keep listening and keep seeing things differently. And most importantly, keep seeing with more than just your sight. Thank you. Thank you so much, Marcus. Thank you.